0: And if you happen to be in the kansas city area anytime soon we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person again thanks for joining us today and we hope that you enjoy today's message okay we are in the final week of this eight week long series uh, called dear church we're looking at the letters that paul wrote to various churches in the new Testament. Next week we'll kick off a series that will still be letters, but not in this sort of way. They're more to people um, instead of to churches for the most part. And so today we're going to end in, we're going to get a two for one. We're going to be in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians of the New Testament. Uh, Letters to the churches in this region of Thessalonica that Paul wrote. And there is a theme that runs through both of these letters near the end of the Bible. And it's the title of the message today, which is, The End Is Near. Yeah, that's the theme that we're gonna look at today. So let me ask as we get started, what exactly does that mean? The end is near. What is that message all about? So to help explain uh, where we're gonna go today, I wanna show this quick video clip to get things started, to give you an idea of where we're gonna go today. So check this out. Hmm, hmm. Homie, you didn't touch your second dinner tonight. And you're reading books. Word books. What's going on? Bart, the rapture is nigh. These books will help me figure out how nigh. This whole deal is scientifically proven. The book of Revelations has 404 verses. Add the number of people at the Last Supper, minus the number of Filipinos in the Bible. And you get... 3,100... 3,15 p.m. May 18th. That's when the rapture will begin. May 18th? That's one week from today. A week? That's... seven days from now. The world will end next week. Ben, your children's college fund. Thaw that turkey now. This is Kent Brockman reporting live from downtown Springfield where overweight doomsayer Homer Simpson is predicting the world will end next wednesday homer what turned you from sad drunk to mad monk funny story kent it's the end of the world god loves you he's gonna kill you here's my angle there's no way in god's heaven i should get into god's heaven but maybe he'll let me in if i warn others the apocalypse is coming as i previously shouted i see so that's where we're going today we, we are going to talk today about the rapture. That is a theme that is, that is found within 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We're going to cover what that is. That may be a term that you're familiar with. Maybe just now is the first time you ever heard that term or that word rapture, which is not technically in the Bible, but the idea we'll read about in a minute is where we get that word from. Uh, so we're going to look we're going to look at four questions today to try to understand what this event is. That's an important event and we're going to find out why. So four questions today about the rapture. We're going to find out what is it? When is it? What does it mean and why does it matter? We're going to find out what the rapture is, when it is, what does it mean and why does it matter? I will give you a heads up, we're going to be looking at quite a bit of scripture today, um, just so that there's no confusion on, hey, this is Stephen's idea of what this is, or this is his personal view or opinion. We're going to pull uh, everything we're looking at today from the New Testament, okay? So we're going to look at, again, these four questions about the rapture, starting with question number one, what is it? And at its simplest, the rapture is simply a promise from Jesus. At its core, that's what this event is. So Jesus obviously lived, he traveled with, he trained, um, t- especially 12 men in this inner circle, uh, and then others sort of in an outer sort of fringe. But with these 12 men, he gathered with them the night he was betrayed we celebrate communion with that the Passover there so he's with them and he's giving them sort of some bad news he's telling them there's a transition that's about to take place where I've been with you all this time leading you guiding you training you getting you ready for this moment when I will not be here forever And so then after this moment, Jesus is arrested, he's crucified, he dies, he's buried, he rises again. But he makes this promise here. Let's start in John 14 uh, to look at the promise that Jesus himself gives about what we now call the rapture. John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Skip down to verse number eight, John 14, verse eight. He goes on to say this I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. So Jesus says, I'm going to go away. For a little while to get things ready for you to come be with me forever. So he says he will go away, but then he promises he will come back. I'll not leave you as orphans. You're not going to be left alone. Now, part of that is he promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to come to be with his church and his followers and his people, but he also clearly says, I will come again. So as we said, after this night, he's arrested, he's beaten, he's crucified, he dies, then he rises from the dead, and then for about a 40-day period, the resurrected Jesus is then once again hanging out with his followers, his disciples, his people, and then he gathers them together for kind of one, they don't really quite know this yet, but for one last moment together before he actually does leave. So let's look at that, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, look at this event where Jesus then Leaves. It says so. When they had come together, that's Jesus and his disciples. They, his disciples, asked him, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" He said to them, "It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority." We'll come back to that idea of timing here in a few minutes. But he says this: "But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way you saw him go into heaven. So this is when Jesus leaves the earth. He ascends into heaven. But even at this moment, he promises he will come back. So Jesus said he would leave, and he did. But then Jesus promised to return and the issue for Pauls, so we'll get into the Thessalonian letters right now, is 30 years later when Paul's writing, Jesus has still not returned. And there are a lot of issues with that, a lot of details that Paul has to kind of lead this church through to understand what's going on and what is going to happen. And even today, Jesus has still not returned. It's been way longer than 30 years since Jesus left, but his promise still stands. He said, I will go away for a little while. Now, it's kind of cheating because another scripture says to God, a thousand years is as one day. So as far as God con- as God is concerned, Jesus has only been gone for a couple days, right? Two thousand years to us is forever. To God, it's like nothing. And so he says he will come back. And so what we're going to look at here as we look at what it is, is look at this event as Paul records it. So one more scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Paul tells us what this event will look like. So he writes this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he sees people who are dead in Christ as just asleep. There's a lot of issues with that. We don't have time to get into today, but these people really are dead. Paul knows they're dead, but he's seeing, and in a spiritual sense, he knows they're going to be risen again like Christ. So he says fallen asleep. So simply put, what is the rapture? What is it? It's a future promise of Jesus that he has yet to fulfill. But since he promised to return and always keeps his promises, we know that no matter how long it is between the promise and the reality, that Christ will return. So it's a future, soon return of Jesus as he promised. That's what the rapture is. But now let's ask a more interesting question to many people, and that is, when? is the rapture. Inquiring minds want to know, when will this event happen? Jesus has something to say about that as well. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says this, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Listen to this, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself, only the father knows. So when we ask, when is the rapture? Jesus says, hey, if you find out, would you let me know? <laughs> Basically, is what he's saying in Matthew 24. I find that fascinating, that the eternal second person of the Trinity has at least one thing that he does not know. He claims that he admits this himself. Only the Father knows the exact moment when he will say, okay, son, it's time, and then the, this event that Paul talked about will happen. So it's interesting. The Father knows the exact moment. Experts try to figure it out. And numerologists try to use the Bible to calculate, like Homer Simpson, based on this number and when it's going to happen. And kooky people in their bunkers with their corkboard with the string going from one thing to another try to figure out when the rapture is going to happen. But guess what? It's a waste of time because no one knows except for the Father himself. Jesus tells us this very plainly. And Paul underscores this same idea In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this. Chapter 5, the first three verses of that chapter, Paul writes this. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure... Then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. What's interesting here is that what Paul says about when it will happen suddenly without warning is the opposite of when most people assume it will happen. It's the opposite of the Homer Simpson clip. It's not going to be a bell ringer with a sandwich board warning us. It's going to be we're living our life every day normally, not really thinking about anything particular, not thinking about the return of Christ, and especially the culture apart from him. They're not looking for him. They're not waiting for him. They're just living their life, and all of a sudden, he will return. It's interesting to consider that. When you go back to Matthew 24, where we referenced Jesus a minute ago, after that one verse where he says no one knows, he equates it to the story of Noah and the, and the flood and the ark. He says it's going to be just like that, where suddenly Noah gets this message, this word from the Lord, hey, build this huge boat, because rain is going to come. It's apparently never rained in that way before, ever in the history of the world to that point. And he says it's going to rain not only a little bit, but so much it's going to flood the entire earth. So he gets this message, but the people around him are just oblivious to what's going on. They're not spiritually sensitive to what God is doing. They don't care about what he wants them to do. So Noah builds the ark, people apart. Live their life like normal. Noah works and works and labors while the people just party on. Noah gathers the animals. You would think by this time they're seeing animals in, you know, rows of all types going to this huge boat. They would, you would think they would assume something's gonna happen here. Like whatever Noah's been telling his neighbors or whatever, like, okay, okay, I get it now, but nope, they don't. They just, you know, keep going on, living life, doing their thing, eat, drink, be merry. And then suddenly, drip. Drip, whoosh, basically. Noah and his family are tucked safely in the ark that God had told them a couple hundred years before to build. The animals are in there as God told him to do it. God shuts the door, drip, 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 whoosh, and then this worldwide flood destroys everything and everyone except for the few people inside the boat. Jesus says that is exactly what his return will be like, suddenly and without warning. So it doesn't do any good to try to figure out when exactly, if it's May 18th at 3.15 p.m., because no one knows, and it's not going to be maybe in the way that we think. We don't know when, but we do know it could be at any moment. It's imminent. And when you look at the writings of the disciples of Jesus and the people that wrote the New Testament, they were under the assumption, under the belief that Christ would return in their lifetime. They're not, they're not, even Paul says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the rapture. He's assuming Jesus is, is gonna come back any moment. He had this assumption, this thought, this belief in the imminent return of Christ. Now it didn't happen, but I'm guessing he went to his grave believing and hoping and waiting for that moment. Even the next to the last verse of the Bible shows this to be true. That's how the Bible ends. When John has this revelation of the end of days, which we'll, we'll get to Revelation in a minute, so just buckle up, everybody, okay? You came for Thessalonians. We're going to get into Revelation in a second. But when John has this revelation, the final thing Jesus says to him is, Behold, I'm coming soon. And John's response to that is, Yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then that's the end of the Bible. Even the end of the entire Bible has this expectation of the soon return, the imminent return of Jesus. And John had that belief. All of his believers had that belief. Now there's one issue as we continue in Thessalonians here. If that is true, if we don't know when it's going to happen and we can't pinpoint it, and it could be at any moment, then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 could be problematic. So let's look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul, same author. Different letter, but same author, about the same topic, says this. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. The issue that Paul's addressing here between the letters apparently is in the first letter, near the end of it, he's saying, okay, the rapture is going to happen, it could happen at any moment, it's going to come without warning, and then after that, people in the community, maybe in that church, are saying, oh, it's already happened. So then part of Paul's reasoning for writing this second letter to the Thessalonians is, no, it hasn't happened yet. Christ has not come yet, so don't believe them when they tell you that. Paul says no. The problem is, how is Paul going to know if he's already said, no one knows? what's interesting is he gives a couple of signs that he doesn't get specific on, but he says there are two things that will happen before that day. There's going to be a great falling away, a great rebellion, and then also he says a man of lawlessness or destruction will be revealed. Let's look at those very quickly. A great falling away. What does that mean? We don't quite know. How great is this great falling away? Are we talking about like a million people, like 10 million, like 100 million? Like how great is the falling away? Is it People who have put their faith in Christ that then turn away from Christ? Is that what falling away is? Is he talking about the, great, the broader culture that turns their back on faith altogether? Is that, we don't really know which of those, probably a combination of the two in some way. We don't, we don't know that. How long period of time is this going to take to go on until we reach that you know, point of critical mass where now the rapture is going to happen? We don't know that. But we do know, if you read on in verse 7 of this passage, it's not on the screen, but if you read in verse 7, he says this is already happening. He says this law says it's already happening sort of quietly behind the scenes. And you and I see the world around us. We know this is already still happening. Even, it's accelerating even since Paul's day, I would imagine. I mean, the, the I don't want to use the term yet, the sort of spirit of antichrist in the culture is very prevalent. Like, we are not in a Christian culture in the, any, almost anywhere in the world anymore. It just doesn't exist. So we're seeing that. So where's the breaking point? We don't know, but we know that what Paul's saying was already happening in his day. is still happening in our day, but that's one of the two signs. The second one he talks about, he says, The man of lawlessness will be revealed. He says that this person in this same chapter, chapter 2, is being held back right now. Or it's that whenever this person appears, they'll be held back until... He, until God, it says, get moves out of the way. So this person, the man of lawlessness, is obviously, we presume, who? The Antichrist, right? So this is the, this, you know. there's been a lot of debate on who this was and who it is and who it will be, right? What, Hitler was not it, I'm sorry. So just imagine this real quick for me. So the person that Paul's talking about, who's going to be at this time in history that we're going to about to go through is going to be like worse than that. Can you imagine that? So there's been a lot of debate. Uh, even quickly, there was a church that Kim and I attended very, very briefly in college. And you'll know why when I tell you about it. The pastor's sermon one Sunday night was about the Antichrist. And he just came out flatly and said, and this was like 15 years ago, that the current sitting pope was the Antichrist. That was his sermon. And I was like, yeah, we're going to go find another church now, right? Because that's just crazy. That's just insane. Like, who? you know, right? So there's always, who is it? When's it going to happen? We don't know. We don't know who it is or when it is. But God says that before, or Paul says that before this rapture happens, the falling away will kind of reach this critical mass. And then whatever number that is or whatever time frame that is, and this person will be revealed. He'll be around in some form or fashion until God moves out of the way. And then all these things happen. But that leads to the third question, another interesting question that we will talk about for a minute, and that is, what does it mean? What does the rapture mean? Why why is it important? So we know that it's the promise of the long-awaited return of Jesus, but the question is, is there any other significance to that event? Besides the believers that are caught away with him, besides all those cool things, what else can we learn about what the rapture does? Well, what we know is that it seems to kick off a series of events that leads to literally the end. So the title of this message is "It's we're, the end is near, but then once this event happens, the rapture, then the end is really set in motion. Events will happen that that are just there. So let's look through very quickly what some of these events will be, and I'll reference where they are. We're going to be in Revelation for a few minutes. We're going to be there on, a, it's on Sunday later on, but we're going to look at it here. So we see this event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but then when you go into Revelation, really what that kicks off is what... Uh, Revelation chapters 6 through 11 kind of describe as the Great Tribulation. So it's about this, we believe, based on some of uh, Daniel's prophecy and some other things in Scripture, about a seven-year period of just utter darkness. So the rapture happens, Christ is in the clouds, the dead in Christ rise to meet him. If we're alive and we remain, we're caught up with him. But then after that is just seven years of famine, war, plague, evil, pestilence, disease, persecution, and death. So not something that we really want to stick around for, right? Which we'll we'll get to that before we're done this morning. And so this man of lawlessness then will just totally step into full view. Once God moves out of the way, then it's like his time to shine if you will and in some way we don't know all the details because a lot of here's the here's not the problem here's the difficulty with revelation there's two main issues one a lot of it is is described in odd ways not literal ways a lot of figurative language a lot of symbolism in revelation that's one main issue the other main issue is that it's not really written in chronological order so when you read 6 through 11 it's sort of happening in this period of time then stuff way near the end is probably just after that or but it's like why is it 10 chapters later it doesn't it's not written in that way John's revelation must have been like a wild crazy psychedelic thing I mean it's like you know insane so he's kind of writing things down and trying to figure it out as he goes and what he's seeing here. Then I, so when he says, then I saw this, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the next thing to happen. It means that then he's right. Okay, then I saw this. He's just making a, a bullet point of what Jesus shows him in this revelation. So anyway, we have this seven years of tribulation. Things are not good. Uh, at least a third of the world dies in some sort of crazy, tragic event like at one moment here. It's, it's wild. So then this is seven years of terrible, basically, literally hell on earth. Then we get to Revelation 19 and we see Jesus riding on a white horse. So all these like, you know, stories of the the, you know, knight on a white horse come straight from Revelation 19. That's where that's the, you know, where it started from here. He literally comes and then the antichrist, this man of lawlessness, when Jesus comes, he just destroys the dude. Throws him into this lake of burning sulfur and fire, right? So that guy's out of the way. Then that ushers in a 1000-year it's called the millennial reign of Christ. So we have seven years of bad then jesus comes and now we have a thousand years where jesus reigns on the earth for a thousand years it also says we will reign with him interesting to consider that now there's two ways to read that again i don't have time because i know the chiefs are going to kick off in an hour and a half and you're aching to get out but some people would say well no it's just believers who died during the seven-year tribulation who will reign with christ there does seem to be there, that as well, but there are other scriptures that talk about believers who will reign and rule with Christ. That would have to be at this moment, because we're not going to do it later on in heaven. He's the only one ruling that domain, so it's going to be in this period of time, a thousand years of total peace. The reason this happens is because Satan himself is thrown into a, it's described as a bottomless pit, okay? So it's like, it's like if Red Robin with their bottomless fries, just imagine Satan, bottomless pit, Okay? So he's in there, 1,000 years of peace. We reign with Christ on earth for that 1,000 years. Then Satan is released. He builds, like, think Lord of the Rings now. He's building this army, this huge army that the Scripture says is too numerous to count. So every evil power, principality, person ever, right, is going to gather, and they're going to surround God's people. Now, how many of you have ever, have ever had your expectations just totally not met with something? Maybe you're told, man, this restaurant is the best in town, and you go there and you're like, eh, you know. Or this movie is going to change your life, and you're like, I fell asleep halfway through. It wasn't that great. So sometimes, so this battle that we're looking at in Revelation 19 and 20 is kind of that way. Satan, is, he escapes from a thousand years in this bottomless pit. He's going to roam around the world and the universe and get every evil power and surround God's people and for this epic battle, right? And then the way it ends is God sends fire from heaven and destroys them all. There's no battle. There's no final battle that happens in Revelation. It's Jesus on the white horse, throws the Antichrist into the lake of burning sulfur and fire, thousand years of peace, Satan gets out, builds an army, whoosh, fire destroys them all. That's kind of, you know, like, you know so it's not exciting, but it is exciting, okay? After this moment, then, is the, what the Bible describes as the final judgment, and then that's it. That leads to the end. Typically, when we think of the end, we think doom and gloom. We think, oh, it's the end. It's coming. It's nigh." you know. But actually, for believers, the end is actually amazing. It's wonderful. Let's read about it. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. Here's what the end of the world actually looks like. Revelation 21, 3. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be His people, God himself, will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's what the end of the world looks like. For those of us in Christ, it's amazing. It's something you can't even begin to comprehend or imagine, and that's going to be your eternal reality. So all of these things will happen. The rapture kicks off all those series of events. And then heaven will be a reality for eternity for believers. And on the flip side, then, after that final judgment, hell is then the final reality for anyone who has not put their faith in Christ. So this all gets put into motion with the rapture. But now let's, fi- let's finish with this most important question about this event. So What? Why does it matter? That's the question we'll look at here as we close today. And the answer to this question will depend entirely upon your spiritual condition. Why the rapture matters depends entirely upon your spiritual condition. So let's start here. If you're a believer, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, here is how we should feel about the rapture. A few scriptures that we'll work through very quickly here. If you're a believer, here is how you should feel about the rapture. Titus 2.13, he writes this, While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. This future event of the rapture should fill you with hope. Because this life stinks. And this world is broken and awful and terrible but when jesus returns it means that the end is near and as we already discussed it's the end of sin the end of suffering the end of sickness the end of pain the end of sadness the end of death we should look forward with hope to that day and then second thessalonians chapter 2 16 and 17 paul again here writes now may our lord jesus christ himself And God, our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. So like it should bring hope, it also should bring comfort. You do not have to fear the afterlife. You don't have to hear about the raptures coming and it's coming quickly and it's coming suddenly and without warning. And you're like, I'm not ready for that. That doesn't have to be your reality, which we'll get to in a minute. And we also know in the first, the, the way that Paul introduces this entire concept in First Thessalonians chapter 4 is he says, the reason I'm writing you about this is so that you're comforted about your loved ones who have already passed. He says, I don't, I don't want you to grieve like those without hope. So then he tells us, those who are dead in Christ, we will see them again, we'll be with them even at this event in the rapture, and then with them in eternity forever. That's really the main point of emphasis that starts this whole discussion about the event of the rapture, is to bring comfort to us in times of grief. And then here's another thing here, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. We should be excited about this event called the rapture. We should anticipate the return of Christ. Let's read that. Uh, It says, Just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, he came for that the first time, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Remember, the first century Christians believed he would return in their lifetime they would see this event they would live through this event so let me ask you christian do you expect anticipate that jesus could return today do you expect anticipate that before i finish this sentence that, you know, it could have happened. That would have been amazing timing. We would not have remembered that moment in eternity future, but it could have happened. And it would have been epic, right? So he could have, he could come at any moment. We hope that he does. I want to be like John in Revelation 22. Yes, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I got nothing else left that's more important than being in eternity with you. I got nothing else that I want to see happen. Yeah, I got kids that I would like to see grow up and graduate. I'd rather be with jesus in eternity than to see anything else happen have anything else happen any other huge milestone event i don't care that's what i'm looking forward to and as a follower of jesus i hope that that is our heart but until jesus returns we do have work to do and we see that here in chapter 5 of first thessalonians verses 23 and 24 says now may the God of peace make you holy in every way may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful so we expect anticipate hope for that return any moment but until then we're to live for him put him first love him most not out of obligation Not so that I can earn this rapture if it happens in my life, not so I can earn salvation, but out of love for him, out of devotion to him, out of excitement for him, living for Jesus. But what that doesn't mean is that we live in this bunker mentality. I'm going to watch the sky and live for Jesus and just close my wall, myself off. No, Paul, Paul says don't do that either. Here's what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I know we're going back and forth, back and forth, but here we go. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. It's an active faith, right? Then verse 12, Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live, and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says Christ is honored by whom? By the people around us. How? Because we're living out our faith. If you're not living it out if you're not actively serving him for others to see like i'm not bunk i'm not hunkered in the bunker right with my with my board here trying to figure out when the rapture is going to happen i'm not i'm not just going to read the bible you know by candlelight like i'm going to be actively doing the work of the ministry actively living out my faith so that christ can be honored because of that okay so i'm going to close with this i'm, I'm going i'm almost done So let me just say this. If you're a Christ follower, my hope is that you live with this expectation of his return. That you expect him to come any moment. And that brings hope and peace and joy as you live out your faith. Let me just say this, though, as we close. I I, I can't, I can't share something like this and not come on the other side of it, the other side of the coin. And that is, maybe you're not following Christ. And so this kind of freaks you out. This kind of scares you or concerns you. Maybe you're like Homer Simpson, right? I know and there's no way in God's heaven I'm going to get into God's heaven, right? Maybe that's where you are. Can I just tell you, you can have the same hope and peace that I have about the return of Christ. And it's nothing special about me. Like, I don't have hope and peace in me for his return. I have hope and peace in Christ for his return. I have hope and peace in Christ because of his first coming that purchased my salvation, that offered it as a gift to me, that all I have to do is receive that, and then everything is brand new. My outlook on life now and on eternity to come is totally different, all because of what Christ did his first time he came. The rapture is called the second coming because he already came once, right? To deal with sin, to die for our sins, so that when he comes again, we can then be raptured with him and be with him forever and ever. And all one must do is put their faith in Christ, and that can be your reality for waiting on the rapture as well. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your son, Jesus. We do thank you that you sent him to earth once already to deal with sin, to be the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice for our sin. And then we thank you for the promise of his soon return. We don't know what soon really means as far as you're concerned, but we believe it could be at any moment. We believe it could be before this day is done. We believe it could be at any any moment in in the future. And so we await with hope and joy and peace and anticipation for your return. Help us to live out our faith as we wait for you and live in our faith with you. But for those who may be here and maybe they have not made that decision, that commitment to put you first, to seek you as their salvation for their sins, today can be the day where everything changes for them as well. Instead of dread for that event to come, it can be hope and anticipation and excitement. And all they must do is put their faith and hope and trust in you to secure their salvation. Thank you for salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.